This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Sam and I have been, for the last few weeks, engaged in a study of the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatian region uh, for, the, for basically all of the churches in that area. Um, Sam, we've, we've already filled people in on the fact that uh, Paul likely was the one who planted or founded this church. He was responsible for sharing the gospel with them initially and leading most of them uh, to faith. Um, mm-hmm. And then there was some kind of a breakdown, <laughs> which we've ex- you know, explained as these uh, Judaizers, they were called, which were uh, some people who were, you know, they were acknowledging that Jesus was the Messiah. However, they were saying that in addition to faith in Christ, that you also had to keep the ceremonial law still, that, mm-hmm. that uh, even though Jesus gave you salvation by faith, really nothing gets you off the hook of the law. And, and that just absolutely gutted Paul. Mm-hmm. He's, he was very upset by this. It was a very difficult thing for him to hear. Um, and so this letter has been about Paul correcting them. And he's, you know, at first it was sort of a kind of a, you know, how could you do this to me? Paul ended up even having to defend his own apostleship. Mm-hmm. Like these guys were saying, hey, you're not one of the original apostles. You know, why mm-hmm. should we listen to you about this? So all these things have been, if you missed any of this stuff, that's that's what's taken place over the last few weeks. Today, we come to chapter four, where we begin to deal with our standing as sons of God and heirs of God. Now that son mm-hmm. there is, it means Sons and daughters. It's not a, you know, it's it's inclusive. It's not like just guys. Um, but what it's what Paul's going to do th- this week is he's going to say, are are you seriously going to pass up all the benefits you have of this inheritance? You're going to walk away from this inheritance just so that you can feel a little better about yourself for keeping these ceremonial laws. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where we are this week. Did I did I summarize pretty good? Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. And so in chapter four, what he's going to get to, because he spent, he spent the last three chapters just tearing down legalism and the idea that you can earn your salvation or even contribute to your salvation. And like you said, the Judaizers come along and they're like, yeah, 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 Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, and he's kind of, you know, he's cleaned you up, but now you have to kind of carry it to the finish line and contribute and be obedient and everything else. And, and Paul is like, whoa, no. No, absolutely not. There's no part of your salvation that you contribute. God Almighty came into this world 
as a man, died on a cross, took your sin, gave you his righteousness, and he died for all the sins that you've ever committed, the sins that you commit today, the sins that you will commit into your future. It is once and for all time. Jesus has purchased your salvation. You don't contribute to it. And so when he gets to chapter four, the, the pivot here is now he starts talking about your identity and, right. and Christ. And he's like, you know, if, if you're slaving away and you still have to earn it, then you'll never be anything more than, than a slave. You know, and you'll resent your master. Like eventually you, you, you never have freedom. You never have a relational component. You're always just there to be a slave, to do what he says. But there's the relational aspect is not there. And then Paul is pointing out, no, no, no. God wants you as a son or daughter. And when you consider yourself as a son or daughter, it changes Everything about the way you see God, everything about the way you worship, everything about the, your sense of security with God. Uh, it's, it, it's a total game changer. And so Paul really wants to hit them with, okay, you're going down the road of legalism. Do you really want to give away your, your sonship to become a slave again? Right. Well, and that's something that up until now, um, he really hasn't, he, I mean, he just started discussing that at the end of chapter three when he talked about how those who were Abraham's, you know, children by faith, we were the children of promise, we're in that mm-hmm. group, we're also, therefore, through that same relationship, we are heirs, we're, we're sons. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it's been a, it's been a relatively, I guess, you know, recent departure for them, um, if you were, uh, you know, if you were a Galatian, if you went to a church or was part of a synagogue in, in the, in the region of Galatia, and you were hearing this from Paul, uh, would this have likely been something that you would have heard before? Has, has, you know, on Sunday morning, has the, has the pastor or whoever took over for Paul, is he getting up and, and preaching on this positional truth? Is he reminding you that you're a son of God? Or, or is this like, you know, Paul, you didn't tell us, you know, I mean, how is it? No. So, so prior to this, to be considered, I mean, it wouldn't have been unheard of for God to be called father, but he's being called father in the sense that he's the creator of all things. He's the one who, who gives birth to creation itself. He brings forward all things. Paul is talking about an entirely different kind of relationship between a child. Like it's, it's not just, Hey, you know, he created us. This is an intimate relationship that you have with God as father. Uh, one where y- you imagine your own role as a father. You do anything for your kids. You dote on your kids. You want the best for your kids. You're invested in your kids. You wake up thinking about how to care for your kids. Like to imagine that God is that intimately Involved and concerned and in love with his children would have been yeah. radic- a radical departure. Right. Radical departure from anything that they had heard before. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Paul finds a real world example, which is somebody who is a son, but is yet still a child. Uh, in that case, you wouldn't have received your inheritance yet. You wouldn't mm-hmm. have received everything that your father had promised you. But mm-hmm. in fact, you might be 
it, used, it might feel like you're still a slave mm-hmm. because you really don't have anything because you're too young. Yeah, um, and and you're under the rules of the house, right? So I, you know, I I can understand him trying to explain that to them so that there's not any of this. That there's nobody there who's being contentious about it and saying, "Hey, you say that we're a son, and yet." God basically treats us like we're children. Well, mm-hmm. we are children. You know, it's like that's kind of how we are in comparison to him, at least right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so then after he's, you know, after he starts off here at verse one, where he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. He goes in verse two, he says, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that Paul's comparing guardian, the law, to a guardian? Like mm-hmm. the, the law is being yeah. compared to something kind of good? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's like the hymn says, Amazing Grace. It says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved." What's it talking about? You don't begin to fear God. You don't begin to respect God. You don't realize that you need a Savior until something's been put in front of you that shows you that you fall short, right? Right. Well, well what is it that is put in front of you that makes you realize that you fall short? It's the law, and right. so, in some sense, a child is no different than a slave. Like, a child grows up, and it's just the law that's in front of him. And it's going to be the law that's kind of this this guardian, the schoolmaster that's training you to recognize your need of a Savior. And it's when you realize that, that you can't do it on your own, that you're trained to see, oh my goodness, I have an inheritance. I have a standing with my father that's not contingent upon whether or not I keep all the rules. That's when you graduate and you recognize you're growing out of your childish ways of thinking that you, you're, you're good enough, really, spiritually speaking, and you become a son, a recipient of grace, a child of, of Christ, like bought by his blood. And that is, is where you graduate to the next level. Because if you think about the role, the way that a child is versus a slave, a lot of times a slave will have more advantages in the ancient world. You know, they didn't, they had, they set their own bedtime. They ate what they wanted, you know, whereas a child, it's you wake up at this time, you go to bed at this time, you're going to get this meal and you're going to like it. And, you know, the child's day isn't set by himself. And a slave, a lot of times had a lot more freedom than a child. A child is under rules. But when he grows up, when he becomes an adult, and he receives the inheritance and he is grown out of that childish way of thinking. His reality is far different than a slave. Right. Now he's a freeman. Does that so make first, sense? Yeah, it does. No, okay. that's, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential in sonship. Um, mm-hmm. Slaves aren't going to, Eventually inherit all the wealth and the, and the household. Right. Um, so there's but, a, there's a potential in the inheritance is what I'm saying. But the law is necessary to bring people to Jesus because you won't be found until you recognize you're lost, if that makes sense. And the way that you recognize right. you're lost is when you have an objective standard that's standing in front of you, a mirror of some sort showing you 
your distortions, your your the, all the ways that you fall short. That's when you go, oh my goodness, I need a savior. I need mercy. I need grace. But if you don't have that guardian of the law, how would you come to realize it? Sure, sure. So in that way, you you could say that the law was something good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the law accomplished its goal, which was to lead us to Christ. To say, if you want out, here's your way out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all over the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. And how do you come to fear the Lord? It's recognizing <laughs> what you owe, how indebted you are, and coming to terms with the fact that you have to throw yourself at his mercy because you'll never be able to do it on your own. Right. So continuing in verse 3, Paul writes, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Um, so it's interesting because it, it previously he said you're enslaved by the law. And then he says that the scripture enslaves you, enslaved the world by sin. Um, in the prior chapter. So this idea that we had all these things working to convince us that we needed a Savior, and now we come down to the elementary principles, which are, in the case of Jews, we're talking about the law of Moses. In the case of the Gentiles, we're talking about the customs and whatnot of their pagan religions. But it's this idea of uh, the elementary principles. It's saying these are the basic religious uh, sort of law-keeping practices of your religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it just, it, by this point, it makes it plain to me, at least as, as somebody reading this, that there's just all kinds of things that are all working to do sort of the same job in me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, Tom, I, I used to love when he would, pull this out in a sermon, but when he would talk about, you know, how we don't measure up to the standards of God, every once in a while in a sermon, he would stop and say, you don't even measure up to your own standards. You know, if you wrote down in your journal all the times that you said this person ought to, and this person ought to, and all these people should do this, if you held yourself to the same standard you hold everybody else to, you would fall woefully short. So, like, even, even with, like, we're talking about these elementary principles of the world, the way that the world is structured you you come across it and feel like a failure because we're we're defining things wrong i remember and i may have shared this story before but i forget if i have but five years ago my my oldest son's in ninth grade right now caleb like five years ago we're sitting in our living room i'm i'm reading something he's doing his own thing and all of a sudden he says hey dad and it was like what's up caleb and he says i think i'm gonna be a failure in life And it was like, you know, like code red, you know, as a dad, like where in the world is this coming from? And he started listing and I said, hold on a minute. What do you mean you you feel like you're going to be a failure in life? And he's like, I just I feel like I'm going to be a failure. And I said, "Okay, well, I want you to stop for a moment. And before we talk about this, I want you to define for me, what does it mean to be a success in life? You know, and here he is, you know, the firstborn son of a pastor. We talk about Jesus all the time. We talk about the gospel. We talk about the freedom of the gospel. And yet when he was relaying to me what was in his mind as being a success in this life. Now, granted, he's an elementary. 
he starts laying down, you know, the big house and the career with lots of money and getting into the best colleges and all of these things that, you know what, honestly, that's the elementary principles of the world. And he was feeling like he couldn't measure up to them. And so that was such a wonderful opportunity to say, Caleb, let's redefine how you see a successful life. This is how God defines a successful life. Yep. And we started talking about grace and loving him and loving your neighbor and doing those things. And I was like, Caleb, in those realms, you are kicking butt. Like you have such a tender heart, such a heart to love other people. And by the time we got done with that, like he was on cloud nine. It was one of my, <laughs> one of my favorite father moments, but it was like, holy cow, how, how enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, even somebody in fourth grade in my home had become. And it's, you know, we all fall to that. You know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, 43 year old pastor. I still oftentimes find myself measuring the value of my life by principles that have nothing to do with God's word right. and have no scheme in the ultimate sense of things as to, to who I am or how valuable I am. And they sneak in. And that's where Galatians, Paul is coming in saying, you're a slave to it. Like, reject it. Get rid of it. Like, recognize your sonship and stop defining your life by either the elementary principles of the world or the fact that you can't measure up to the law of God. They do not define you. Hmm. That, that's, uh, that's good. And it's a, that's a, you know, I, I think that that's something that all children, all young people pass through that storm. So that's mm-hmm. a, a good thing to keep in mind. I spent a lot, a lot of counseling in my office with adults that are still continually learning sure. this lesson. It's sure. hard. It's hard to get away from. I'll betcha. So uh, now we have a verse that I, I love the verse, and I, I love what Paul's talking about here. But it, it, it seems like Paul steps aside for just a minute because he was talking about, you know, being under the law and talking about being. Uh, Sons and, and so, but here in verse four, he takes a quick pause and he says, but when the fullness of God had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. And then he says to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But he, he mm-hmm. opens with this, with a couple of interesting ideas here. The first is this idea of the fullness of time. Um, that may be, I mean, I think it may be too simple just to say that that means at just the right time. It does mean that. But I think this idea of the fullness of time, uh, means more than just at just the right time. Would, would you agree? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like it's building. The idea is, you know, the word there is to fill or full. And so you imagine a bucket that's, you know, drip, 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 and it's been growing and growing and growing. And at precisely the moment that it was full or complete, God was like, now, now's the time. Everything that's supposed to be in the bucket is in the bucket. Go. And God sent forth his son. And so there's, there's a very, it's a, it really, the fullness, you know, in English, we tend to read right through that, but it's, there's kind of the sense of that. Like everything that's in the bucket is now in the bucket. Go. It's the idea is God's sovereignty and orchestrating all of this right. is perfectly 
right at this moment, it's set up to, to receive the Son of God like no other time in history could have been. Hmm. Well, and it says God sent forth his Son, born of women. And I think that that's another interesting thing because it doesn't say born of a woman, which would be logical if he was talking about Mary or if he was just talking about Christ as being a descendant of Eve, going back to the promise made in, in Genesis 3. But I think that what the reason that he kind of leaves out that personal you know, pronoun there is that, and it's not a pronoun, but just that sort of making it singular. Um, I think that the reason he takes that out of there is to let us know that this, that the coming of Jesus is a fulfillment of promises that he made to several women. Uh, you know, it's like right after the fall, he explained to, you know, he prophesied to Eve that it would be her offspring, her seed that would crush the head of the serpent and, mm-hmm. and then implying he would rescue the world. Mm-hmm. And we know the promises God made to Mary. You know, he shall be called Jesus and he shall save his people from their sins. So he made these promises to Mary. Uh, and so in here, by saying it this way, I, I believe that God is saying, and this movement, sending my son, is going to satisfy the, the promises that I made to several of you, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, is cool. Uh, now, when it, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, what does it mean when he said that he was born under the law? Uh, is that anything different than how we find ourselves? Like we were, you know, before we mm-hmm. are saved, we're sort of condemned by, well, not sort of, we are condemned by the law. Mm-hmm. And so, is that, yeah, what it, is that what it means here? Yeah, so every human being that's born is born under the law. We are all required to give a perfect accounting to God for all of the laws that he's ever given us. And so eventually every single person on planet Earth is going to have to stand in front of the throne of God and give an account for whether or not they kept the law or not. Now, there's there's two options into how you deal with that. For the Christian, we say, you know, I appeal to Christ who kept the law on my behalf and gave me his righteousness. So look to Christ because my righteousness comes from him and he has taken away my sin. And in that sense, you know, we're born under the law, but when we come under the banner of Christ's grace, we're freed from the law. He's fulfilled it for us. But everybody who chooses to reject Jesus will stand in front of the throne of God, giving giving an account for whether or not they've kept the law because we're all born under it. But what's different and this is this is key is Jesus Christ is the only person in the history of the world who earned salvation in a sense mm-hmm. he kept the law he was good enough to warrant heaven everyone else has fallen short of the glory of God who has ever lived in their own merits and so when it when it, when Paul comes cuz what he's doing through this entire chapter and it's really important when if you're going to understand chapter 4 you've got to understand the tension that's going on between the covenants of grace that you find through the Old Testament and the covenant of law and still to this day this causes all kinds of mess in the church 
Because what happens when, when God comes in Genesis 3, he gives a one-way promise. It's not contingent upon what we do. He says, I'm going to come. I'm going to send through the, the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the snake. And there he's promising a savior. And you fast forward to Noah and God gives another covenant. And he says, I will never again flood the earth. It's a one-way promise. It doesn't depend upon what we do. He will never flood the earth. Then he comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to multiply your descendants. And through your seed, I'm going to bless all nations on earth. It's a one-way promise. He doesn't say, Abraham, if you, then I. No, no, no. It's I'm going to, period. And you have all these covenants of grace that you find in the Old Testament where God is promising to bring salvation no matter what. But then what throws a wrench into it and makes this thing complicated is when it comes to Moses, God gives laws. And he says, I will bless you. If you obey. And now all of a sudden you've got, wait, 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 which one is it? You know, is it, is it you're going to give me grace no matter what because it's your unilateral promise or do I have to keep this law over here to be blessed? And so there's a contrast. Like if I have to be good enough, how is it grace? And mm. when Jesus comes in, he answers both covenants. He he is the answer of God's promise. He is providing salvation regardless of whether or not we earn it or good enough, whatever, because he is born under the law. And when he lives his life, he's living it in our place. He is being obedient on our behalf. He is keeping the law and then he gives us his righteousness. So now... We receive the covenant of grace, which is a one-way promise, but now we're made worthy of the covenant of the law because of his obedience, right? Mm -hmm. And so he's redeemed those that were under the law so that the law no longer keeps us at God's arm's length. And now we can be adopted as sons because God looks at us as perfectly righteous. And so these two covenants are no longer at odds because Jesus has made us worthy of both. Hmm. Hmm. And as he says, um, by redeeming those of us who were under the law, he's made it possible that we could receive adoption as sons because we're not... <laughs> We're not actually the son of God as you know, Jesus was, um, mm. but he has promised us all of the inheritance, all of the spiritual blessings that that Jesus will have. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like he's going to become the firstborn among mm. many brothers. Uh, he is, you know, we're co-heirs, you know, with him. So mm -hmm. there's all this language in the New Testament in particular that that emphasize to us that God's inheritance, his planned inheritance for us, the adopted sons, is the same as for his natural son, mm -hmm. um, which is an incredible gift when you think about it because, you know, I, I, I've talked about this at other times, but we live in a world where somehow we have ascribed great goodness and virtue to vast empires of money. Um, we think there's something special or different or better about an Elon Musk or a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffett or whomever, Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. These people who have phenomenal amounts of money, we react to them like somehow they're just intrinsically better than everybody else because look at all this money that they've earned and 
that now they're able to spend on themselves, as well as philanthropy, where they're able to uh, create these foundations and, and fund them and see to it that people are taken care of. And yet, all of that, all of that vast wealth and all of those seemingly good things do not compare at all, not even one iota to what we will inherit as a co-heir of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that should be exciting. You know, I think honestly, if you, if you were in the church and you found out that Jeff Bezos had written you into the will, I think there's a lot of people in the church that would be more, express more excitement about that than the truth of what Paul is saying here. Like it has a hard time making it past our skull (laughs) and, and really getting into our hearts as to what we're in store for. Like you have the infinite inheritance of Almighty God. That makes Bezos and Musk and all those guys, they look like paupers next to God, like less right. than paupers. Right. And you stand to inherit that. That's a reason to be excited. Like that's your future. Um, because he loves you enough to make you a son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's given us a, you know, a privilege here. Paul's like, you know, he, he wants them to know that they're, that they're privileged, not just um, that they're protected and mm-hmm. and guaranteed uh, of God's love to them and, and guaranteed of being redeemed, but he also wants to create a picture for them of this, that it's not just about what you will inherit, it's not just about your, you know, your being saved from under the law, but it's also in verse 6 where Paul says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through <laughs> God. So he has sent his spirit into our hearts in, and used that to empower us in such a way that we would cry out, Abba, Father, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. Because it that mixes two words, that one phrase, Abba, Father, mixes two words, one Aramaic and one Greek, both of which mean Father. Um, so it's just it's some interesting wordplay there by Paul. You know, mm-hmm. whether you're whether you're old school or whether you're new school, whichever school you are and claim to, there is you know. You're included in this ability to call out to God intimately. Mm-hmm. And those two words are the, a mixture of what was considered a familiar, familial term for dad. It's like papa or dad or daddy, along with father, which of the Greek word is pater. And, and so you, when you put those together, what Paul is saying is this isn't just the generic term of father, you know, that can apply to like the fatherland or father, God, creator, whatever. Like this is intimate. Imagine your relationship with your own dad infinitely closer than that. 
His heart is far, 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 far more loving towards you, far more concerned, far more doting upon you than the best relationship you'll find on planet Earth between a child and a father. It's that kind of intimacy that Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The God of the universe has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, to come in because he wants you to call him Papa. Like, he's the one that's initiating it. He's not just saying, hey, you can call me Papa if you like. He's saying, no, 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 it's so important to me that I'm initiating. I'm sending my spirit into your heart so that you understand the closeness that I want you to feel for me so that you can cry out Papa. And it's him that initiates it. It's not It's not an invitation. It's him saying, my people are going to feel this um, because I'm initiating it. I want them to sense that. radically different than anything the world had ever seen. Like you asked earlier about different uses of the word father, if they'd have ever heard this, like how many times in our own culture do you hear people who, you know, know, know nothing of Christianity essentially will say we're, we're all God's children. And it's like, uh, you know, and the sense that he's the creator and that he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust and, you know, he cares for creation. That's absolutely true. But in, in terms of a covenantal, eternal, deep, intimate love, radically different. This is not everybody has the spirit in them to cry out Abba yeah. to God. That is a covenantal relationship that's familial. Everything else is impersonal, and that's not what the Bible's talking about here. Right. Well, and Paul expresses his concern for the Galatians when he goes on in verse 8, and he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So these Judaizers, these zealots, these people that wanted to pull you aside and get you involved in these rituals and and bringing yourself as slaves back under the law, these people were not God. You know, I'm bringing you the words of God. I'm bringing you teaching that I got straight from God. He makes that point really strongly in chapter Mm 1. So Paul is not bringing you the words of someone who's not God. Um, and then he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the wicked, worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Mm-hmm. That is the $64,000 question. It's like now that you've, you've, you've experienced all of this, like you've come close to God, he, you have a relationship, not just you knowing him, but he knows who you are now too. You've got mm-hmm. this relationship where you cry out, you know, Papa or Daddy, Abba Father. Um, and so how is it that you can turn back? How can you go back to this? You know, it's one of the things that, and I know that we've encountered this at different times in counseling people, mm-hmm. which is they're in a terrible situation. They're in, just a, you know, their home life is terrible, their professional life is terrible, everything's going wrong, and you battle for months trying to convince them just how much God loves them, and just how much God is, you know, willing to and ready to save them and redeem their lives and all this other stuff, and and you 
think you have a breakthrough. It's like mm-hmm. they, they finally say something that makes you go, yes, I've heard <laughs> you say that. Now, I, I, suddenly I feel like it's all been worth it. And then the very next day they come back to you and they've not budged one inch. They're still involved in this terrible situation and, and they're reacting to it as if nothing changed. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's like, mm-hmm. how can you want to stay where you are? How can you want to go back to this situation in which you were made to feel like a slave? I don't get you. Mm-hmm. But that's that's human nature. I mean, if you if you think of uh, it's a human nature that needs to be put to death. <laughs> yeah, I'll say that. But if you go back to the the most famous story of slavery in the scriptures, it's when Moses is used by God to come into Egypt and to deliver the Israelites out of their slavery, a harsh slavery at that. And the scriptures are honest. They tell us something that make us go, why in the world would that be true? But think about this. When Moses delivers them, the slaves out of Egypt, they're not out in the wilderness going, oh, thank you so so much, Moses. This this is so much better. <laughs> they're, no, they're not. They're they're saying I want to go back to Egypt where I, at least they gave us pots of meat. I want to go back to Egypt where it's familiar and comfortable. And yeah, I know I was enslaved. I know I didn't have freedom. I know I didn't have a great prospect in front of me. But it was comfortable and safe, and I knew what it was. Yeah. And, and that's where people, you know, when the gospel comes, it asks you to take everything that's precious to you, money and career and all of these things that have been your ultimates your whole life, and to sacrifice them and to put them aside and to grab hold of something that's far greater, which is God. And to live for him, to pour out your life for him and for others. And that's radically different than the way the world trains you up. It's, it's new. It's novel. It's a little bit scary. And you don't see God in front of you like you see a paycheck, you know? And so it's very easy for people to go, you know what? It was, it was, I wasn't happy and, and it felt like the world was chewing me up and my job was just, you know, it was just slavery and everything was broken in my life, but I knew how it worked and it was comfortable. And they drift back to what's comfortable. Um, and it's human nature. And that's, Paul is looking at them going, holy cow, like I remember when, when you were worshiping with tears of joy, I remember how the spirit liberated you. Man, you were on fire. And now you've given yourself back to all those things that were making you miserable before I got here. Like, why would you do this? Yeah. And the answer is, it's what we know. It's comfortable. Yeah, you know, it's like the, it's like that old joke, or more not really a joke, but sort of a Aesop's fable kind of thing, you know, about the scorpion that wants to get across the river. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he goes to the turtle and he says, "Give me a ride across the river," and the turtle's like, "I'm not going to let you get on my back. You're going to sting me, and then, you know, I'm dead." And the, the scorpion says, "Why would I sting you? I'll be on your back. We'll both die." What does that benefit me? Obviously, I'm not going to sting you. And the turtle says to himself, that makes sense. So he lets the scorpion climb on his back. They get right about out in the middle of the river where there's no chance to be saved if they can't swim. And all of a sudden, the scorpion stings him. And as they're both going down, the tortoise, realizing that they're both going to die, says, why? And the scorpion says, I'm a scorpion. It's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. 
Human nature. It's what it's we human do. Nature. It's what we do. So. And that's that's part of the reason why the gospel comes to us. It recognizes that this is in all of us. You don't grow out of this until glory. By the way, it's the reason why Jesus says you have to take up your cross daily. It's the reason why Paul refers to us as needing to be a living sacrifice every day. We have to come back and say, you know, the temptations of this world is to draw us toward these weak and worthless elementary principles that are going to enslave us. And I have to wake up and remember, no, 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 I am a child, a beloved and purchased adopted son of the Most High. This is where I get my value. This is the inheritance I'm living for and shed off all the pressures to go back to what is it proven slavery and misery. And and you can reason it out that if you live for all the elementary principles of the world, all of it gets taken away from you at the grave. So you're miserable for your life, and then it's empty at the grave, like it's all rendered powerless. Everything that you've fought and slaved over your whole life is going to be stripped away at the grave. Why would you do that? Because it's what humans do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's True. No other, there's no good answer for it other than that. Um, this is just what we do. So Paul goes on to say, uh, he lists a couple of things here. One of them, for example, you observe days and months and seasons and years. You know, you read that sentence and you're like, Mark, what? He, they observe <laughs> days? Like, we're not supposed to? We're not supposed to know the difference between Tuesday and Wednesday and Wednesday and Friday? Um, and to be honest with you, many weeks I don't. <laughs> but that's because I'm a cancer patient. I'm home. It's like, I know it's the weekend because there's no doctors that want to see me. Other than that, <laughs> I'm not sure how to tell the difference anymore. Um, but, you know, this kind of thing, observing days and months and seasons and years, what Paul's getting at is that you observe the rituals of the law, which are almost always timed to when they are supposed to happen. You, you know, you observe the following feasts and, and, uh, the following, uh, great gatherings and all of these things from the, from the Mosaic law or from pagan ritual. You observe these things and they're tied to a specific time or a specific place. So when I talk to you about observing the days or observing, you know, the, the locations, the place that you worship, I'm saying that you're doing these, not that you're actually doing something wrong with the calendar, but it's that you are observing these rituals that are tied to that. So mm-hmm. it's not that, it's not a thing of, of them, you know, my goodness, you're educated about your calendar usage, but, <laughs> but rather it's a, you know, it's a thing about, you yeah. know, you're observing all of these different mm-hmm. things and what it makes Paul say over them, he's, it's like it's anguished. It's, it's, it's heartrending. He says, I am afraid I may have labored, labored over you in vain. So hmm. that's where he comes out of that. He's like, he said, you're, you're observing all of these rituals again because mm-hmm. I'm really getting worried and, that I labored over you in vain. And they're doing it thinking that it somehow makes them worthy of God. And so that's Paul's issue. It's He doesn't care if you celebrate something. You want to celebrate it, celebrate away as long as it's not contrary to the scriptures. Like what, what the problem is, is they're thinking, 
I'm now worthy of God because I do all this stuff. And in the era that Paul is writing, it's like Roman Catholicism now. If you look at the Roman, there's there's a patron saint festival, you know, meal just about every every day. If you went, if you got in a time machine and you went back into the Roman world, the Gentiles had festivals that they celebrated all the time. And in fact, Claudius, who's the emperor when Paul is writing this, in one year, Claudius had 159 days during the calendar year that people had to take off of work to celebrate different festivals that he had. It's like, I mean, you look at our federal holidays and it's, it's a handful, you know. Yeah. Imagine 159 days that you're having to take off from work. And the, the Jews did the same thing where there was constantly these festivals that if you didn't participate in, you were either an enemy of the state, according to the Romans, or you were not a faithful person keeping the law and you were cut off from the covenant. And Paul's like, that's, that's absurd. That's slavery. Stop it. Like I've preached grace to you. I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain if you're running back to this slavery. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that it's fair to point out that if you, you know, if you chose to not take the day off from work and not go to this celebration, what you were saying was, just take me out and kill me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And because that's what they're going to do to you. Um, there was, the Romans had a remarkably short Mm-hmm. punishment list. Most things just went to take him out and kill him. <laughs> yeah. yes. Whatever. What kind of death? That's pretty that's that's the Rolodex. Yeah. What kind of death shall they enjoy? We we shall we shall spin the the uh, card and wherever the dagger points <laughs> on the shield of armor here that will be the manner of death. So So Paul is continuing to write where he says, "Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am." For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. That's kind of a twisted, convoluted train of thought to follow there. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What's he talking about? Hey, what he's saying is, stop being enslaved to the law. He's not saying, I want you to be as moral as I am. That would be totally contrary to everything that he's saying here. He's not saying, look at me, I'm amazing in the way I'm so good. You need to be like me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I'm walking in freedom. I'm walking under grace. I'm walking with the knowledge that my salvation has been purchased by Christ and I don't have to slave away for God's acceptance anymore. Become like me because I've already become like you. I spent the whole first part of my life slaving away for the law. I was zealous for the law. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I I kept it all. And I'm telling you, I've been like you are. You need to become like I am. That's what he's saying. Mm. So you need to get rid of your dependence on the law and, you know, regard and return to salvation by faith, Mm -hmm. which is where I am. You need to be like me in that regard. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And when he when he transitions and he starts saying, you did me no wrong, I think what he wants, what he's communicating there is this is not personal. I'm not angry at you because you did something to me like he's going to go on and say, like, you've been amazing to me. I'm just really upset at how you're treating the Lord and his covenant of grace. Yeah. Yeah, he does go on, actually, to uh, give the Galatians some credit. 
uh, you know, talk about their generosity and their kindness. Uh, verse 13, he says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Um, we don't know exactly what that means. Uh, my theory is that Paul had low vision. Uh, that was something that God had allowed in his life. Paul said it was to keep him from being overly boastful. Um, whether that's talking about whether these two things are the same thing, um, I don't know. But I, I would like to think so. So something about Paul's physical condition either caused him to turn aside when he got to Galatia and seek some, some comfort and some help amongst these people, or there was something about, mm-hmm. you know, his, his, uh, inability, his limitations there, um, that made them more open to, to him. You know, he's, he's come all the way to see us, even though he can't really see us very well, you know? So <laughs> let's, let's bring him in. But it, I mean, it could have been anything. If you, Paul's writing this letter after his first missionary journey. And if you just right. go back and you read in the book of Acts about his first missionary journey, what you find is he is beaten on these journeys. Like there's one town that he comes to, Lystra, where they actually stone him, intending to kill him, think he's dead, and they leave him for dead because he's just a mangled bunch of bruises and cuts. And so you don't know if he comes to this region of Galatia right after that, but you can imagine whatever injury or poor eyesight or whatever, he's coming to them totally poured out and weakened, and that could be a whole lot of things because he had been through a lot. And what he's saying is... This is one of the few and rare spots of refuge that he found. Everywhere he went, he was not warmly received <laughs> with right. the gospel. Right. But they loved him. They were kind to him. And he says, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So pretty high praise there to say that mm-hmm. they received him the same way that they would have received Jesus himself um, probably in that regard a little unbalanced but <laughs> I get the point you know mm-hmm. he was like really touched by how well they received him mm-hmm. and now he asks the question what then has become of your blessedness for I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me which is another reason wow. I think it was low vision but uh you know, we've, I've joked with you about this in the past. Um, you know, if you needed a kidney, I would have donated a kidney to you. I'm not going to bother <laughs> now because my kidneys are filled with cancer. But Yeah, yeah no thanks. Yeah, <laughs> pass on that. But I would have donated a kidney to you because you could live with just one. And I, I would do that. If I was a match for you, I'd be like, sign me up. Mm-hmm. You can have one of my kidneys. Um, but... I don't know that I would gouge out one of my eyes for you. Um, it's a little barbaric, and it's a little painful sounding. Uh, I would hope that he at least got a very sharp spoon. Uh, <laughs> ooh, ooh, I know. Ooh, maybe that may not stay in the final podcast. But he, you know, he did. They were they were willing to do that. They were at that level of devotion to Paul mm-hmm. and that level of belief about his message that they were ready to gouge out their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, remarkable thing. Just a remarkable thing. It, this makes you love the Galatians. As misguided as they are, like this, you stop and go, all right, like, they're, they're kind people. Right. 
And yet he asks he asks another question then. You know, several questions here as part of he's declaring these things. You know, he asks what has become of your blessedness. Uh, he asks these other questions. And now he asks, have I then been, become your enemy by telling you the truth? Um, it's almost it's almost like he's like, you've turned against me. You know, it is a little personal here because you've decided to throw down and forget and leave behind this idea of worshiping and following the Lord from, you know, as, you know, in the way that you were first instructed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he even says that, uh, that if there's even an angel from heaven comes in and preaches a different gospel to you, let him be accursed, let him mm-hmm. be cast out. And so, Paul's now is saying, I'm just reminding you of the same truth that before we were, we told you is so important that if an angel of, from heaven came to your congregation and started giving you this false gospel, you're supposed to throw him out and tell him that he's accursed and not welcome back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so because I'm telling you that again, now we've become enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, and you so get this. A pretty big flip flop, you know, and you get the sense like Paul. When you read chapter one, he is having to go back and he's having to reestablish his authority as an apostle, which tells you that whatever he has heard is making you think that Paul recognizes that they doubt his apostleship. Right. Somebody has come in and kind of ruined Paul's reputation to where Paul is taking the time to kind of reestablish himself as an authority figure from God. Which means when he asks, like, all right, you don't trust me anymore. Am I your enemy by telling you the truth? Like Paul is recognizing, if you're going to dismiss me, then you have to dismiss my claims to be an apostle having heard directly from God. So do you reject me? And in that sense, like, am I your enemy? Do you, do you not trust me anymore? Yeah. Yeah. And now he's going to turn here for a minute and talk about the, the deceivers, the ones trying to lead these people astray. And this idea of zealotry, of them being z- of the zeal that they're showing uh, for this, what they claim to believe, that you have to keep the ceremonial law. Uh, Paul says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. So they're obviously, they're in this for their own needs. They want the Galatians to make much of them, to to say good things about them, to ascribe mm-hmm. a high standing to them because they want to be well regarded and in charge around the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's interesting because he says that it's like they're making much of you, but not for anything that you should be congratulated for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's Interesting because there are some who will say that it's okay, even if you are doing or saying something that's not quite right, as long as you're doing it with, with a, for the right reason, with a good heart. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, which I, I don't believe that at all. 
I think they're coming at, and they're flattering them. They're making them think, oh, you're, you're really important, da, 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 so that, you know, that they're, they're given over to them, but it's not for a good purpose. And then what do they do with that affection is they then shut them out. Like they're the ultimate authorities. It's like, ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, you're, you're telling us that we're important, but then you're telling us that we're not inside the true camp of the Judaizers. And so they're shutting them out so that the response is, what do we have to do to be one of you? What do we have to do to be accepted? And again, it's this slavery. And when you, when you treat the Judaizers who have shut you out like they're the authorities who can shut you out, you're making much of them. You're giving them authority that they do not deserve. These are the people that are preaching the different gospel that should be accursed. And yet you're running after them, ascribing to them some kind of authority or honor that they're absolutely not worthy of. Right. And they're just playing you like a fiddle. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's perfectly okay to have people make much of you for a good purpose when you're actually doing something, you know, for the Lord and for the gospel to advance the, the preaching of the gospel and to expand the kingdom. Um, when you're doing something good and for the right reason, Paul says it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you. So he's reassuring them. I'm not saying that you have to uh, shunt aside anybody who compliments you for mm-hmm. your faithfulness, your laboring in the, you know, as a partner in the gospel. Um, if I come up and start telling you that, that that sermon you just preached meant a tremendous amount to me, that I really enjoyed, uh, the material in that, in that Bible study or whatever. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be going. Yeah, I know it. I know it sucked, but <laughs> the best I had. That kind of thing. You shouldn't do that. You, mm-hmm. you know, you you shouldn't call inadequate the things that God has made adequate and, mm-hmm. and special in someone else's eyes and life. Yeah, um, shouldn't God- do that. Yeah, it's a matter of where you direct the, uh, your glory. You know, like every, I think everybody's made with this desire to make a big splash with their life. The question then becomes, yeah, what's, what's the purpose of the splash? Is it, is it to lift others up? Is it to lift the kingdom up? Is it, is it for good purposes? Then man, splash away. You know, we're kind of wired to, to want the weight of glory. God has made that in us, but it's, it's, you know, we, we want a big crown so we can lay it at his feet is kind of the, the better way to see this in, in my mind. Like, I don't want a crown just so people go, Oh, wow, look at Sam. You know, the, the hope is that whatever I'm doing with my life is making the lives of those around me better and it's exalting God. Mm-hmm. That's worthy to be made much of. Yep. Yep. That's definitely the good purpose. Um, so then Paul in verse 19 writes, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You know, Paul is confessing here that he really is honestly confused by them. He's like, I don't have any idea why you're doing this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense to me. I would love to be there with you so that instead of being corrective and maybe a little harsh in my tone, I can, I can lighten up. I can come easier mm-hmm. to you with, 
because I'll be able to see your, you know, see your, look at your eyes and, and understand through body language some of the things that you're saying. Um, but he's saying, you perplex me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really kind of confused about this. Um, and then saying mm-hmm. that he's in the anguish of childbirth. It's like he wanted to see them return to Christ and return to the gospel uh, so much so that he described it as being like the anguish of childbirth. Mm-hmm. He is he is standing firm on a theological principle, but he's doing so with tears in his eyes. Yeah. And uh, that's that's a missing element from so much of what we see today in virtually yeah, theological debates, political debates is, you know, Paul comes. He's a strong cup of coffee. He's not willing to negotiate on the essential core nature of the gospel and yet he's doing so one like he says wishing that he could be there giving them a hug he's got you know he's in anguish that they're in conflict over this and that this is driving a wedge in the body of christ like but there's tears in his eyes as he's being strong and you know we need to remember that yeah that's a good model mm-hmm. so now we come to the example of hagar and sarah uh which we're not going to be able to cover the entire thing right to the end of the chapter because of time. We've been telling you that, you know, we've got only a certain number of weeks to take this on. And basically we've got two chapters staring us in the face and one, one more broadcast, uh, to do it in. So we're going to have to start, you know, skipping certain passages here and there. And we're going to, we're going to let go of the latter half of this story of Hagar and Sarah because really the, the first half of the story presents all that we need to know from it. The second half is, is emphasizing things slightly mm-hmm. differently to bring it, but it's the same information. Paul's, Paul is repeating himself, basically. So here in verse uh, 21, Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great, it great is. line. Great question. Um, he's like, hey, you know, you, you want to put yourself back under the, have you met the law? You, <laughs> did you spend any time with the law at all? Um, again, this is Paul being a little bit sarcastic, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's yeah. got that capability. So there's 613 laws in the first five books of the Bible. And there's no chance that if you're saying, ah, you know what, I, I want to be measured by my obedience to that in front of a holy God. There's no chance that you keep the 613. No chance. It's, it, it just, it does nothing but curse you. It's like, you know, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you know, for Christians, there's no chance that you're going to keep all of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's kind of meant to be this impossible task that draws you and, and th- it makes you throw yourself on the mercy of God. And, but these people are like, oh yeah, 613 laws. Yeah, I broke, you know, 218 of them this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to be under that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, in this case, uh, he's talking about Abraham's two sons. Mm-hmm. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Now we know Hagar is the slave. Uh, we know that Sarah is the free woman. Uh, 
he goes on in verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what is, what's that talking about? Well, you remember those two covenants? That's what Paul is getting into again here. You see, one of these promises, when, when God first came to Abraham, starting in Genesis 12, he said, I'm going to bless you with a massive number of descendants. And obviously through Sarah, I'm going to do it. Even though she's barren, she's probably postmenopausal, she's well in, ahead in years, like I'm going to overcome this impossible situation to bring forth life where life looks absolutely impossible and the only thing you can base this on is my promise period and so they go through and they go along and whatever 13 years 15 years or something like that they get along and they're like you know what god's promise i i just i i'm not going to count on that you know obviously you're barren you're you're way past menopause you know women your age just don't have kids anymore so what we need to do is contribute god can't follow through on his promise so now we need to offer our contribution which is works right like it's the works of the law and so Sarah's like hey I've got a I've got a slave woman why don't you sleep with her she can still have kids we can contribute that makes sense to me then we'll have a kid and so Abraham goes about saying yeah I'm going to contribute to this thing and I'm going to kind of force God's hand to give me a son and those that's the picture of the two covenants one is relying entirely upon God even when it seems impossible that his promise is going to be true that's the covenant of grace it's going to bring life where life looks impossible and then the other side of this is the covenant of the law where it's like yeah he needs my help I'm going to contribute something and you know how they play out the covenant of promise brings forth Isaac and and the plan of redemption and the line of Jesus and and the nation of Israel and everything else is contained in the line of Isaac, he's the son of promise. Whereas Ishmael, though God is faithful to Ishmael, Ishmael is cut out. He does not like God. He tries to harass and he probably, you know, he's a violent man and he's outside of the covenant and slavery, trying to do it on your own, produces illegitimate children is the idea. And so when you're talking to Judaizers and people that are all about the history of Israel, you can say, okay, relying on the promise brings forth Isaac. Relying upon the law and trying to do it in your own flesh brings forth Ishmael. Which one are you? Are you Isaac or are you Ishmael? And for people who are Judaizers, that question would have been offensive. Of course we're Isaac. Well, then rely on the promise. Stop. Stop relying upon the flesh. Mm. Mm. Yep. You get to to choose. Um, So... Choose rightly. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of it, at the heart of it is God asking the question, do you trust me and my promise that I can bring forth life where life is impossible? And that's the hope of the gospel, isn't it? You know, I, I can't expect to have eternal life through the law. I can't do it. Like it, life is impossible. And yet God, through Christ, brings forth the hope of resurrection, life where death reigns. Right. That's that's the promise. So there is a uh, there's one more comment Paul's going to make about uh, this child of under the law, a child of promise. Um, 
verse 14, verse 24, uh, Paul says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. <laughs> really, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of your stuff can be a little allegorical here. Um, these women are two covenants, which is what you've been saying. Mm-hmm. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Um, that's, I mean, that's some powerful stuff because connected to Mount Sinai, well, that's where the law came. Mm-hmm. God gave the law at Mount Sinai. Uh, connecting it to modern Jerusalem, well, that's the headquarters of the law. That's where mm-hmm. all of the rituals and the temple worship, all these things take place. So there's a very big connection between Hagar and the law. Again, mm-hmm. what you were just saying. And you think about the slavery. Like this would, this is before the temple's been destroyed in 70 AD. So the temple is still standing when Paul is writing this. And what he's saying is, I want you to look to Jerusalem that is slavery. Look at all of the people that are constantly groveling and coming there with their sacrifices that can never really take away their sin. Look at the way that they're exploited by the priestly system. Look at the way that they're bound by all this earthly stuff that can never give them dignity, that can never give them freedom, that leaves them constantly groveling for acceptance and trying to be good enough. All that is slavery, but we worship a Jerusalem above in heaven, the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21. This is the church, the people of God, the redeemed of God, and Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother. We're we're not going there to grovel. We go there with the gift of grace and absolute freedom, knowing that God, our Father, has cleansed us. He has made us righteous. He's made us worthy of heaven. And he has sent his spirit into our hearts that we get to cry out, Abba, without slaving away under the system of the law anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And that comment about the Jerusalem above is free, it, you know, it's not saying that there is a Jerusalem even higher up on the mountaintop, you know, or mm-hmm. the side of the hill, uh, but it's talking about a heavenly city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that, it again, sometimes it's, it's difficult to accept it as true, but, I, but we need to. We need to accept as true the idea that there is a spiritual reality, there's a, a reality that we can't yet taste, touch, feel, hold in our hands, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And and we will get to interact with it when our time on earth is over. Um, so I, you know, I just, I urge people to remember that when you see passages like this that seemingly are confusing, Mm-hmm. The Jerusalem above, above what? Um, that you remember how it is with the, uh, you know, just with those spiritual realities. Uh, so that's verse 26, and that's where we're going to have to pause. Uh, the clock on the wall says that we're out of time for this week, and we've already said that, that we're going to have to start making some choices about which things we include and which things we leave out. Uh, to try to make everything fit. Uh, so, uh, Sam, you had indicated that uh, you wanted to just do a benediction, and then you had a verse you wanted to share. 
Yeah, well, the, the verse is going to be the benediction. But okay. when when Paul is talking about the Jerusalem above, when we get to the very end of Scripture in Revelation chapter 21, it's one of my favorite passages, and it's so beautiful to imagine. But John is given a vision of what it's going to be like on that day when we are brought into glory. And listen to what he says. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I love this part. He says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the Jerusalem above. That's the heart of our God. It's not a God who's calling together a bunch of slaves. It is a God eager to wipe away the tears of his sons and daughters and and do away with mourning and crying and pain and all of those things. That's the God we worship. And so as Paul would say, don't run back to your slavery. Yeah. Call out for your Abba. Amen. That's really good. Well, folks, we hope you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable for you. Um, we hope that you'll return next week while we, when we wrap up the book of Galatians. Um, if you would like to correspond with either Sam or I, uh, you can write to the email address outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O Vista Church.com. Uh, that's also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can find uh, the full catalog also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Podcasts, as well as a variety of new smaller hosts that are out there as we've, uh, we've changed our hosting service and they're submitting us now to many more locations. But the, but the big four, uh, you can find us anywhere. You can also find us on our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app. So we do hope that you will continue to join us each week. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.